Hello Internet, my name is Walter C.A.D.'s Fedchuk, and welcome back to another fantastic episode of Final Cut, presented by the Rough Drafts Podcast Network. Uh, this time, I'm not going to say how long it's been, because time sometimes doesn't, uh, doesn't fit in exactly how we uh, want to do things, and we've sort of changed what our... Um, our uh, release date is. So this should theoretically be Monday or maybe Tuesday, depending on where you are in the world. Um, but I'm very Space excited. Space is warped and time is bendable. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Timey, wimey, something, something, David Tennant. I don't know. Uh, but the voice on the other line, as always, my good friend and podcast co-host, Chase Redshirt King Wassener. Chase, how are we doing today? I mean, I'm doing pretty well. I, you know, uh, as people heard in the Black Widow podcast, uh, that movie didn't go very well. Uh, and I had set aside in my weekend, it was going to be the spy double feature. I was going to do Black Widow uh, and then James Bond. Uh, and it turns out I saved the better one for last. And I'm very <laughs> glad that I did. It would have been so depressing to go from No Time to Die down to Black Widow. So much more fun to talk about a film that uh, actually capitalizes on all of its promise and creates some really fun and memorable moments. Uh, turns out, can be done. Can, can indeed be done. Absolutely. I, I would agree wholeheartedly going from Black Widow into No Time to Die uh, is the correct way to do things. You should always start uh, with your cheaper and uh, lower shelf liquors and then build your way up into your higher, your deeper, your uh, more proof, more expensive uh, tastings. So I do think like we went from like really, really cheap plastic jug vodka with Black Widow and to go see No Time to Die in the theaters was like a really, really, really nice scotch in a nice velvety armchair with a cigar kind of sitting on a side table and, and a wood fire burning in the background. Oh, it was it was just perfection. But Chase, before we get to No Time to Die, I just wanted to check in. What else have you been up to? What else have you been watching or, or viewing or listening to? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, haven't been doing a lot of watching other things outside of the World Championship. Uh, I've been playing a lot of things. Uh, there's this game, Inscription, that's currently kicking my ass right now <laughs> by the same developer who did uh, Pony Island. Uh, it's a horror card game, which I did not know you could do, but you can, and I'm terrible at it. So I, I don't... <laughs> all I can say is uh, go play it if you think surreal horror things are fun and good. Uh, I'm typically a wimp when it comes to that kind of thing, which is why, like, this time of year when everyone's watching Hollywood, uh, Halloween films is not doing much for me, uh, that game is doing a lot for me. Uh, partially because jump scares are not what it leans to, but partially just because uh, I love things that subvert expectations and challenge your understanding of genre rules, uh, which... The film we're talking about today certainly doesn't do that, but it doesn't need to, because sometimes the genres are good, actually. Um, yes. Very I, different feel. <laughs> yeah, I would I would completely agree with you on the sort of ho Halloween. I love fall. 
Um, and my birthday is a week before Halloween, so most people would go like, oh, you got it. This is like your favorite time of the year. Uh, no, I hate Halloween. I hate, I hate getting scared. I hate horror. Like, that's just not my ish. So yes. when this time of year comes around, it's like, okay, it gets my birthday, it gets my birthday. Cool. High point. And then like the next week and a half is just pure misery for me. <laughs> uh, just from like childhood trauma of friends scaring me with the ghost face mask because when I was like seven or eight, Scream came out. So congratulations. You've ruined Halloween forever. And I didn't trick or treat from second grade until I was like 17. So I didn't yay. either. But for me, it was because I don't like chocolate. So most of what people were going for didn't help me at all. It's like, but Chase, how could you give up on all the candy that you wouldn't eat because you don't like it? It's like, oh, well, it turns out I could just stay at home and I could have the leftovers of whatever candy we don't give out. And I know that the thing we bought is something I like rather than a 30% success rate and having to interact with people. Yeah, and that's, and that's where having four other siblings comes into account because I don't like a lot of candy either. So I could just go in there and, and pull out the, uh, you know, crunch bars or the Kit Kats, which are, are my favorites. So that's Halloween for me. But now here we are post-Halloween when this is released. And Chase, let's let's get down to this movie because No Time to Die, I, I assume you went and saw it in theaters. I went and saw it in theater and actually did discover, I lied on the last episode, I have a movie theater within walking distance from me too. Congratulations! <laughs> it, it really is nice, isn't it? Yeah, it's it was fantastic to be like, all right, what are the showings? Oh, it's like I got to go to like a nine o'clock showing on a Saturday night after I get out of work. Man, I really don't want to drive half an hour. Oh, wait, there's one five minutes from my house. Beautiful. So we're just going to go there. So, Chase, let's just start at the beginning. No time to die. What were your expectations going in, and did it meet your expectations? I had very little expectations going into this film. Really? Mostly because Spectre was not good. And it had been six years since Spectre. And almost every Daniel Craig interview you will find in between those two periods, pretty much between when Spectre comes out and when COVID starts, are, man, I really don't like this whole James Bond thing. This is really obnoxious that this is all anyone knows me for. Uh, and I don't care for how people have built up this crazy fandom around it in a way that I just don't want to participate in. Um, which, to me... There were so many signs that this was, you know, it was obviously going to be the end of an era, but it was a very up and down era, right? Casino Royale was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I think not. Uh, what was it? Quantum of Solace was next. Would not say the same about Quantum of Solace. Skyfall was awesome. Spectre. So how do you stick the landing on such an uneven series? I didn't know going in. And the answer uh, was uh, one of the most badass ways for a movie to end. I guess this is where we say spoilers, right? Like, we're not going to be holding back on I, how any of this stuff I goes. I think at this point, if you've listened to any episode of Final Cut, you know we pretty much spoil the hell out of the movie. So uh, if you haven't watched it, by all means, we love you. Thank you for the view. Um, you got to, you know, just about the eight minute mark. So go ahead and pause this for now. Go see the movie, then come back. I think it still counts as a listen for us, even if you don't. So don't worry about it. But please continue, Chase. 
James Bond dies. Holy shit. That was the one thing going in that my roommate was like, man, wouldn't it be so crazy if James Bond actually died? And then they did it. They they fully committed. And it was earned over the course of this film. They made us really care about Daniel Craig's Bond, not just as a character, but as a piece of this larger puzzle, right? This someone who operates it has been such a pivotal part of the world that the movie has created but also one who is a cog in a machine that is inherently flawed and really has to come to terms with the fact that this job will never be done because there will always be bad guys and he can't do it forever and at the end of the day he picks his moment that's worth dying for and that's so damn good from a narrative perspective. Did not see that coming, uh, wanted to see it coming, and thought about how cool it would be if they did pull the trigger. And they did, and it's great. It worked out, 10 out of 10. Uh, shout out to this movie for having the guts to do it. I would say that coming into this movie, that was the big thing I was afraid of, was the ending. Um, I really thought it was going to be a good movie. I thought kind of the the synopsis of what I had read before, even though... You know, there have been hits, you know, there's been misses in the Daniel Craig uh, Bond movies. It's been every other movie. So theoretically, based on that law, this should be a really good movie because Casino Royale and Skyfall were amazing and Quantum of Solace and Spectre were mediocre. So I was really hoping for a good movie, but everything to me hinged on the ending. What do they do with Daniel Craig? Do they do the, you know, the Dark Knight trilogy thing of like, okay, he like disappears and then we're going to see him on some beach in, you know, I guess in the Caribbean or uh, maybe Southeast Asia or something. And he's going to have, you know, the love interest sitting next to him that they've been building for two movies now. Or are we going to give him the Hugh Jackman Logan ending of... You have become so iconic and synonymous with this character, and I know that bothers Craig, but listen, dude, you were in Knives Out and Logan Lucky. Like, you've had a little bit of room here in the last few years to sort of push beyond just being the guy who is in James Bond. Now, you're the guy who is in James Bond and Knives Out, so consider yourself lucky you're kind of getting into that Vin Diesel realm of like, there's three movie franchises that are going to pay for your grandkids college. Um, but yeah, I was really scared. They were going to do the dark Knight ending, which it would have been good. I trust that they would have made something incredible to end it with, but I desperately, desperately wanted that final moment of everything that Craig's bond has been building up to has been to this ultimate moment of self-sacrifices uh, self-sacrifice that matches what M did, what Judy Dench did in Skyfall. I thought that was the only way this movie could end that would satisfy me. And holy crap, did they give it to us. They gave us a, a heart-wrenching ending that is on par with Logan, with, with the love interest, with the not your child, but is actually his child, because come on, like, we're not, we have to make it his kid. And just that heart-wrenching moment of, like, I I can't get out. I th The ending of that movie just completely blew me away. That he gets it open, and as he's, like, just getting ready to leave, just being prepared to leave, 
it all closes, and the moment that those that those blast shield doors started to close, I got excited because I'm like, holy crap, he's gonna die. Yeah, and 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 there was this idea, like you you hear it in the characters' voices. Because the thing is, we knew going into the film, right? Like as an audience, we know that Daniel Craig is not coming back for this role. But we don't know in-universe that this is the case. The characters, certainly in-universe, don't know that it's the case. And there's a real pain coming from seeing a guy give up everything to save a world that he's really been on the outside of for so long. Um, and that those final shots are really just... They're powerful because they're earned, because this film took a lot of time uh, building up both the level of threat that they come to encounter in this, something that is absolutely so bad that it is worth dying over, um, but also that he has a legacy such that his loss matters. Um, and I have to admit, uh, his romantic interest, uh, Dr. Swan, uh, from Spectre, did not care for, wasn't really a big fan. Really? Didn't, uh, didn't do much for me. I just, okay. I didn't find her to be particularly engaging, found her to be a little annoying. Um, but in this film, I have none of those critiques. I, I think okay. there's a real pain in the uh, opening when she's left behind, which for Bond makes total sense. And for her, uh, you know... Th- the revelation that there's a kid involved, and of course he says it's not his, but we all know that it is because of course it has to be uh, because they never saw each other again. And there's a, a real hurt there that, that plays out, but also connects them because they're both people who have had to deal with a lot of hurt due to the factors that have been kind of defining each of their lives and come to define the drama of the film, right? Um, it matters. It's all personal. It's all relevant. It all furthers both the plot and the characters within the plot every time we learn more about what's happening and where the world is going, which basically makes it the anti-Black Widow, where none of the villains mattered and their plot was all superfluous to what our heroes were going to end up doing anyway. Um, This mattered, and I loved that. Yeah, I would I would say, you know, not just because we're just coming off of watching Black Widow, but it there's a really good comparison between sort of a legacy spy franchise that is like here are what the here are the beats that we always want to hit in these movies and really having something fine-tuned and nuanced and just knowing what you're trying to say with this movie, what you're trying to do with it and the sort of commercialized color by numbers um focus group tested movie that we got in black widow i understand it's probably not a super super fair comparison in terms of the character themselves black widow versus james bond because black widow in terms of movies is so much newer to audiences than james bond but there's a lot of parallels here. There's a lot of discussion of sort of family and sacrifice for family and what that means and what you're willing to do for family. There is the, you know, the two villain kind of makeup, the sort of 
weakened, um, infirmed either by age in the terms of Black Widow or by just you know poisoning and as Safine was uh, in this movie, and then the sort of muscle that's there to push the goals of the the villain forward um again taskmaster was not very compelling was just sort of a random dude a random person in a suit that sort of beat up the main character whereas primo or cyclops did add something to it in terms of pushing the the goals first of blofeld and then of uh, safine forward and being a very like that's one thing I like about Bond, uh, Bond henchmen sometimes is that they are a, a a foil to Bond in a way, whereas Bond here Craig is like older and really you can tell that he's not as young and spry and as physical as he once was. Really, ref, you know, uh, they defer to that and sort of have him rely on you know, marksman training and, and using the the uh, car in the very first action set piece. And Primo is like, nah, I'm a young dude that, like, I'm going to beat the ever-loving shit out of you if we get into hand-to-hand combat. And was a very good foil for Craig in this movie um, in a way that Taskmaster just wasn't to Black Widow. Taskmaster was just like, I'm you on steroids. Um, it wasn't compelling. So, and yeah, I mean, you know, if we could just pick a, a scene that I think encapsulates so much of, of why this film works, uh, I'd like to take us to Cuba for a second, if if we can. It's hey, the, absolutely. It's the first, like, obviously we have the initial uh, action scene uh, after the uh, explosion at the uh, the tombstone, which, by the way, uh, shout out to the audio mixers. Perfectly done. That's exactly what you want that shot to do. Oh, so really good. well executed. The car fight, you know, all of that. A lot of fun. They get to Cuba. And this so easily could have been like, okay, now it's time to scout out the bad guys and figure out what their plan is. You know, a, a typical opening mission. And we get uh, a character um, in Paloma who's like, meant to be it's kind of presented more like the stereotypical uh and i'm putting this in quotes bond girl because i don't love that that's a thing that has existed but it's certainly an archetype that the movie is very aware of and takes some time to set up like oh man she seems very green and new at this you know what's gonna happen here and we get multiple subversions of what we expect uh yes we do eventually get a very nice action set piece with a bunch of different smaller firefights that use the uh, location very well of course but you also get one uh specter who we expect to be the bad guy in this film up until this point and who we're totally expecting this to be oh man another instance in which we have to take down this spy organization it's like actually no the poison's gonna kill all of them instead with the exception of like one guy because it turns out an organization like specter also makes enemies, which of course it would. The way Spectre was pulling bullshit in the last film, of course they would make enemies that would also have their own reasons to deal with this. And it makes the world feel more reasonable that, like, it isn't just James Bond acting on the world. It is a world that bounces off of what's existed to create a different kind of threat because of what's necessary to defeat a group like the one that had been established. It expands upon and builds from rather than 
wallowing in and kind of remaining in that comfort zone. The other thing it does is it turns Paloma into a badass. She does a great job throughout all of this. Um, and it's so much more fun than what we could have had otherwise, right? I feel like so many other Bond films would have played her as a comedic bent. And instead, the comedy is that, oh, you expected nothing from her. And she ends up being really good at this and does, you know, very fun. And, uh, you know, the kind of character that like, man, I hope she comes back in a thing because I just I love her energy. Um, and I, I think that it's all pointing to a, a film that is more thoughtful in how it uses the tools that we would expect from a Bond film to create something that feels earned, that feels like an evolution and a culmination of what has been built rather than something that is happy to remain in what they know works because it's the thing that they've always done before. And I love that scene for that. That was the scene where I knew this was going to be not just a good film, but a different film than the film I was afraid we were going to get. Yes, I think I think a lot of the sort of motto of this movie is subvert expectations and, you know, misdirect the audience into thinking what is about to happen and then pulling off something really, really cool that does sort of show this... Um, this discussion of that the age of the you know the age of the traditional bond what uh daniel craig did in in um in casino royale has sort of gone by the wayside and that's something they've sort of told throughout the course of the five movies that the old way of being an mi6 agent or being a spy is gone and we're now entering this new age the bond these five bond movies have done a lot in terms of technology in terms of uh, touching upon sort of these more modern sort of fear uh you know fear things a, an older bond movie would be like oh he got smallpox and is going to weaponize smallpox and instead we get this really nuanced like hey what if we could take genetic information and hard code something into a very specific focused weapon that would only target the one target we want it to target and there's no collateral damage is is brilliant. It's so well nuanced for a modern era. And then yes, this scene in Cuba, very easily, you know, 30 years ago, this would have been Craig and, Pol uh, you know, Bond and Paloma are going to like hit things off. They're going to go back to the hotel room, you know, hit things off. They're going to be like, oh yeah, we're supposed to go to a party. They go to the party you know, Paloma screws something up, gets killed, and Craig is like, oh, the, the the death of another person is on my conscience. And then the sort of, like, co... Uh, the, the sort of, um... um oh, uh, ba, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? The, like, assistant throughout the rest of the movie would then be Felix Leiter, and then he would die towards the end of the movie. And instead, we have the young guns being like, nah, I got this, like, I'm gonna help you out here, and then you can go on your way. And then, because Bond is the product of a bygone era, he screws up, he trusts the wrong person, and another person that actually is close to him, that we actually have a relationship built through prior movies, dies because Bond isn't, isn't the James Bond of old. And they get taken advantage of by Logan Ash and they get trapped on that boat, and his, like, one friend, the, one of the few people in the world that we've been told is friends with James Bond, 
dies because Bond didn't come to play and didn't have his hat on his shoulders completely. He was just like, yeah, I'll do this because I'm going to help the CIA and, and screw MI6. Like, he didn't come to play like he does in Casino Royale. And that's another, like nuance that they've had of this sort of Bond character with Daniel Craig going back to like Skyfall is like he constantly retires he constantly has like a a psychological trauma that they're like we don't want this dude in the field and then like he ramps up he ramps up and is like okay about halfway through the movie all of a sudden he gets back to being like the James Bond of old but every time he sets up to, to confront the enemy the enemy is just like a bit further into the future than him and just it's just like the distance between Daniel Craig's James Bond at his peak and the enemies of the current world. They just keep getting a little bit further apart from each other until we get to this Safine villain that is just like, I, I don't care about you. Like, you don't matter to me at all. Like, you could just walk away from all this and like, I won't touch you. I don't, I don't care about you. I have no, you have no bearing on my life. You have not impacted me anyway. Like, go away. You're, you're a gnat. You're a fly. And Bond forces himself into the picture, which then I think is what makes the ending, the final, like, nail in the coffin of Safin being like, I didn't want to do this to you. Like, you could have stopped at any time and I wouldn't have done anything to you. But now, because you made it personal, because you had to stick your nose into my business, I'm going to take this personally, and I am going to do the single most devastating thing that I can do to you, which in my mind parallels what Silva in Skyfall does to, tries to do to M, which is I am going to destroy everything that you made and everything that you believed in and you're going to wish for death. And in the end, that's what happens to both of them. M is willing to completely sacrifice herself to protect the things that she built and the people that she cares about. And that's the same decision that Bond makes here. Is I can never see my loved ones again. I'm going to just die to make sure that all of this is destroyed so that no one has to experience that. And it's it's so gut-wrenching, that final scene. And it's just done so well in a way that I know Black Widow was trying to do at the end, was trying to sort of get that, like, I can't do this, but you can. You go off and you save the world. I have I, I am separating myself from this. That just completely missed the mark. I think one of the questions this film asks, right, is what does James Bond really fight for? Um, It's not for MI6, a group that uh, invests a lot of time and energy into weapons of mass destruction that are able to pick people apart by DNA, which, by the way, I just want to throw out there, is such a cutting critique of the military-industrial complex The number of generals who will say things like, man, if we only had a bomb that targeted specifically the people that we wanted to target, then warfare would be fine. And this movie very much points out, no, that would be horrifying because that's not because whoever is in charge of that technology is the one who determines who lives and dies. And maybe that's a problem. Maybe this technology shouldn't be there at all. And the fact that like, like... 
the way that that weapon is positioned as trying to remove collateral damage just gets dismantled so quickly and so uh, easily that maybe we should question other weapons that we are developing and justify as being less dangerous uh, depending on, on which uh, country you happen to be using them on. Just something worth thinking about. Um, and the other thing is like, you know, what does James Bond fight for? He certainly doesn't fight for the MI6. He doesn't fight for CIA, um, who, as you mentioned, has that double agent in there, which I think is done pretty well, right? You know, as his friend is like, well, yeah, they just assigned me this guy, and, uh, you know, I didn't... You know, he obviously doesn't know uh, any better than James does, and it's the nature of, well, who can you trust in an age in which even the most unassuming people can be... You know, these double agents, always a thing in spy films, but certainly re-emphasized there. And ultimately what he fights for is his family, and thus, I guess, the larger world. He fights for people, right? He fights for, um, he fights for his, his wife, well, not wife, they don't get married, but his, uh, the, the woman with whom he has a child his and mother. his... Uh, yes, his lover, his, his his child that he just discovers, like that is something to, to protect the world and keep them safe is worth dying for. James Bond could have walked away from this just fine, right? Like the missiles, the missile silo was sent to bomb this island because he said it needed to be destroyed. You could not keep it around. And... It wasn't because you needed to destroy this place to stop particularly uh, Safine, because Safine is able to be taken out uh, in other... Like, he, he's dealt with at a later point in time. Um, it's not about him. It's about what this weaponry can do and how dangerous it is and how the people he cares about will never be safe as long as this is around. Something that is further emphasized by the nanobots that he's poisoned with, making it so that he would kill either his uh, lover or the child if uh, he were to encounter either of them again. Um, so he has to die, because if he doesn't, then not only will they inevitably die, um, but so will all of the other people like him. Uh, so we'll all like this. It's a cycle that he does not want to see continue to happen to people. Um, and I, I think that humanity at the core of it, that not just family, because family is, is obviously, I think, a strong motif in this. But this this idea of what are we willing to die for? Because we're all going to die one. Every single one of us, including you, listener to this podcast, we're all going to die. What do we die for? What are the things that we are willing to sacrifice for? And I love that we got an answer, and an answer that felt very human and, again, felt very earned with this bond. It felt right. It felt necessary might be too too strong, but it certainly felt like it was an important step in recognizing who this character is and has become. 
because he has become somebody that is not just here because it's the thing that he's told to do. He's not just here to fight for king and country. He is there because people are worth protecting. And that's cool. That's a much more interesting uh, version of Bond than we have sometimes gotten throughout his history. And I love that. I, I would completely agree with you on that. I would say that there has been some nuance to sort of what James Bond's motivations are uh, in the Daniel Craig era. Obviously, you know, Casino Royale is like, this is our first foray into it, so he's doing his job. He's doing his duty. Quantum Solace is sort of the same thing. This is, this is what he is. He's a spy. He, he saves the world. And then Skyfall. Skyfall changes the perception not only that we have with the character of Bond, but also changes Bond's perception of what his role in everything is. That MI6 is not this this knight in shining armor out there to fight the dragons of the world. That there is a, a almost a hidden evil to it of itself, but a necessary evil. That it does exist to stop these very, very bad men. And that you know, he can't understand, you know, J- Judy Dench M constantly tells him, like, you can't understand, like, the choices that I have to make, the consequences of those actions, which is something that um, Ralph Fiennes carries over in the, the um, in Gareth, the new M that's in charge of the inspector and now this movie. They carry this sort of weight of, like, we are the hidden decision makers that, you know, the public doesn't get to interact with. And you know, finds has in this moment where he's like, I, I, you know, yes, that lab existed, even though people told me not to, because I wanted a better way, because we needed a better way, despite knowing the risks of what happens if it falls into the wrong hands. And again, it also is sort of this change of the narrative of, of every aspect of, of the sort of Bond girls of Paloma actually being someone that despite at first appearance is this sort of bubbly and irresponsible and you know has only been on the job for a few months into like yeah but that's part of who she is but she's also this ruthlessly trained cia agent of uh the first appearance of uh lashana lynch's nomi the new 007 is like yeah she she wants to like assert herself as she's the new 007 and, and she's you know the agent of the future but it's the title isn't as important to her and is sort of like willing to at one point acquiesce to to bond since he's back and that she might not be as sure of herself as we see her in the first moments when she's driving james back to his uh, you know his cottage or whatever uh, on the motorcycle and then i have to say uh her character was in my opinion uh the weakest part of this film uh i She's not, because her whole thing is that she's hyper competitive with Bond at the beginning and keeps emphasizing, like, I'm 007. Bet you wish you were that number. And, like, he never actually shows that he cares. Like, there's never a moment in which Daniel Craig looks actually put off by this. He never shows that he has a genuine affection for the number or feels like the fact that someone else has his old number means that he's been left behind. And as a result, because they didn't include that into his character, she just comes off like a jerk. She's just 
belligerent to him for no reason because she assumes that he's going to be petty over things he does not care about. And then she gives it up at the end and he also still doesn't care about it. Like, it, it's an arc for nothing. And it really does make me wonder if something was cut because it does not make her look good as a character. Uh, it makes It makes her a character that I can't imagine people are clamoring to see moving forward because... All she does is accuse Bond of being something that he's not, and then she gives him the thing that he doesn't care about much anyway, and then she's done for the film. And that's a thing. I don't know. I don't think it was necessary, and I don't think it helped anybody. Um, I feel like that's something that, uh, a dynamic that should have been retweeted. I can get where you're coming from because, yes, he does not... He's not like, well, I want to be 007 again. I think, if anything, it's just his reactions to when 007 is said. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm, double, I'm 007. Like, oh, it's it's like a force of habit with him. I yeah. do agree that it definitely means more to her. and I, But I do think that there's like a character arc there of showing someone who, at first approach, again, like, think about the parallels of, of the Daniel Craig Bond character. When we first meet him in Casino Royale, he's exactly what you expect James Bond to be. Brash, arrogant, I'm the greatest spy who ever lived, so on and so forth. And then instead of having the sort of collapse of that persona over the course of, you know, two, three, four movies like we get with Craig, we have it with with Nomi over the course of like an hour of where she does try to like call him 007. And I don't necessarily think that is coming from a, like she thinks he cares about it. I think it more comes from just a deference of the situation to him, that this is way more personal for him. And she's trying to figure out a way to like, but it's not, it's not more personal to him. She cares about that number way more than him for the vast majority of the film. But, I mean, the like mission... outside of him, like about to stand up at one point because he hears 007. It does not. I, I don't so, know. So I, don't I mean, mean, if you want to say that, like she's insecure, right? Like if, if that's the argument that like, oh, she's kind of insecure in the face of this older compatriot but she learns to recognize that the old can exist with the new and it doesn't take away from her accomplishments then like fine i guess it i don't know i don't so, feel like their arcs complemented each other particularly well i i don't think like bond's struggle is about how he fits into a world that has left him behind and her struggle is how she fits, I guess, into the world that theoretically she already fits in because how else did she have the 007 title before Bond got there in the first place, right? Like, there's a whole thing that we just never learn with her about, like, why did she join MI6? What are the things that she fights for and really cares about? Like, she just... She just exists as a way to remind Bond that he's not who he was anymore. And that's fine, but I feel like there are so many other ways the movie already does that, where she felt very superfluous and, like, it really uh, hurt her character more than it helped. Because otherwise, what character did we get from her? That was the whole character beat she was given, and I don't think it's a particularly interesting one. 
but that's reasonable, reasonable. And when I say personal, I don't mean the, the the number. I mean sort of the mission as a whole because it does become very, very personal for Bond. Um, and before, but for her, does it matter to know me? That's the question I ask. What is her personal investment that we get at any point in this film? The uh, the satisfaction of a job well done. Cool. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of sort of like character arcs before, because I know we do want to talk about Daniel Craig as a whole a little bit more to, to sort of end things. I would be remiss if we did not talk about Remy Malik, Because yep. holy crap, you want to talk about subversion of expectations. When I saw Remy Malik was going to be the villain, was, you know, casted as the villain for this movie, I was very excited because I'm like, I love Remy Malik. That's great. And then I started thinking about like, oh crap, what kind of villain could he be? And I immediately like got stuck in my head. It was like, oh, they're going to continue on with Spectre type thing. He's going to be like Blofeld's son or a lieutenant or something like that. And oh my God, what could Remy Malik be? Oh no, they're going to do like a Zuckerberg comparison. This is going to be like Elliot Carver from, uh, uh, from Tomorrow Never Dies. Like, oh my God, I'm scared that he's just going to be like the smart Silicon Valley whiz kid. And then they didn't do that, and they made him terrifying. And that opening scene, that opening crawl, and I know that the director had talked about part of the reason why the the Norway um, scene then immediately goes into sort of the um, the vacation between Bond and Madeline was that he was they were afraid that if they put the Norway scene anywhere else, if it was a flashback, if it was anything else, that it would get cut from the movie. And they wanted to make it important because that is the entire backbone of why Safin is after Madeline. And the mask, the sort of the stranger's uh, vibe of him like appearing out of the forest and appearing in the windows and then not, you know, saving this little girl instead, it, it... Remy Malik is a an amazing actor, and they turned him into sort of this horror movie villain that then did the traditional Bond kind of motifs, but still at the end came out of nowhere to make sure that James wasn't leaving that island alive. I, what were your thoughts on on Malik? I mean, he's such a fitting bond adversary because he reflects so much of what bond is supposed to be right if you were to ask uh rami melik's character he would say well look specter were bad guys i got rid of some really bad people who were causing a lot of unrest and uh you know ruined a lot of families like mine i you know he, he would say that he's a character that ultimately wants to find a better way than traditional warfare which has a lot of costs uh, a lot of collateral damage and has convinced himself that he can serve as an arbiter of this power because as someone who has been a victim of the system he surely would never fall victim to uh becoming a part of it right in his own way um and that makes him fascinating. 
uh, he's impossible to negotiate against because he doesn't want any of the things that Bond or MI6 can offer. He doesn't have the same clear desires for money or power. I mean, certainly the power of life and death, I suppose, but it's all built towards an end of his own design that he is convinced is better for people as a whole. And that is the most fun kind of villain as a viewer because it's the kind of villain that does not see themselves as a villain, right? He sees himself as a hero uh, in the same way that Bond is a hero. After all, how many people has Bond killed in favor of the greater good, right? Um, and I think that's fair. I think it's a very reasonable critique of how all of these actors in the shadows, do their motivations matter beyond just the desire to you know beyond how it affects the world beyond how it affects the people that you care about does their motivations coming from a place of hurt change anything do their motivations coming from a desire to avoid that which ruined their own life change anything um and and it comes to things as simple as like rammy letting the kid go when he no longer has use for him which at the first i looked at i'm like well that just seems like a little bit of a plot point to get away from having our bad guy kill a kid which obviously the, no one wants to have happen it's not what i need in my pg-13 bond film but it doesn't matter to him because the pain that he wants to inflict is on bond and it's more painful if the kid lives and bond thinks he's safe and then finds out that he can never talk to that kid again. Okay, that is see, so much worse, and see, that makes the villain so much better. So I disagree with that point. So at that point, it's still... Malik, Saphir, still at that point, does not care about Bond. He doesn't care about if he suffers or not. The, him releasing the kid in that moment, I think, is, is a perfect example of exactly what you were saying, that Saphir... Uh, Safin sees himself as a hero. He sees that what he is doing is he is ridding the world of evil. Evil that, you know, can be decided by someone who pays the right price, but still defeating the world of evil. And Safin, when Mathilde, like, kicks him because she her bunny's gone and she wants to go get her bunny and doesn't want to go with him, it's like, you're making a choice. And I'm respecting that. And there was just like the glimmer of a moment, just one little moment where I was like, oh my God, he sprayed her. And that's- I thought be, so too. I thought he sprayed her, but when they like touch them and they, they there's, there's nothing happens, nothing bad happens to them in that moment. I went, because we've seen how immediate this virus is. We, we saw it at, in the, the birthday party for Blofeld. We saw it with Blofeld himself. Like we saw how immediate this thing would just kill you. So we know, oh, Matilda's safe, not sprayed, nothing. You you forget then in that moment that he took a hair, that he took one hair and had it on him just as a as a safety precaution. But the fact he just lets her go, to me goes. Safine doesn't care about Bond. He's well, Safine like, cares about Doctor Swan because her dad killed his family, and right. Bond is is her partner, and that's Bond's kid that he had with her. And so from that angle, Bond matters. But Bond matters only in the sense that 
hurting Bond hurts the person who represents the person who hurts Safine the most. Um, because she is the last remaining person that reminds him of Spectre, which is the one thing that he is willing to be a bad guy about if it means getting them off of the face of the earth. Is it Bond specific? Not necessarily. I think it has to do with who Bond has partnered himself with. But I think that makes it even better, right? Bond is not in harm's way because he is James Bond. Bond is in harm's way because he loves Dr. Swan. And that is more interesting. That's a thousand percent more interesting. Yes. I I agree in in that regard completely. I think Safina is just like, I can go get her at any point. Like, to him, I've already gotten to her, like, multiple times before. Like, I found her as she's a therapist, and, like, I can get to her. I'm not worried about them at all. <laughs> I'm worried about, you know, finalizing this this uh, this program and getting this product ready to sell to the highest bidder and all that jazz so I can be a hero. I've got her hair. I can program her into this at any point that I want and kill her 30 years from now. Right. And that, to me, is, like why Bond doesn't matter is because it's the same thing. I can get to Bond whenever I want. I'm more focused on accomplishing this. And it is only when Bond goes out of his way to actively stop the plan, when he is trying to escape, that Safine comes in like Michael Myers and is like, you could have left. You could have had your family. I wouldn't have gone after you right away. Like, you could have had it all. You could have been a family man. But no, you just had to keep coming at me and you did this you're the one who is making me do this you are the one who made the decision you are the one who is now poisoning yourself and will never see your family again and even in that moment even in that moment Safian's punishment for bond is not killing bond it's preventing dr swan from ever being able to see the father of her child ever again and that's is so brilliant from a villain perspective because even when he is attacking Bond, it's not about Bond. It's about emotional damage to the person that he feels is is the face of the emotional damage he has had to deal with his entire life. And it's so smart and it matters. And I just love that they took the time to make it matter on these multiple levels. Um, it's so smart. It's so good. I And, and to me... And to me, Safine is the little edge that I give this movie over Skyfall. Because, because, uh, Silva, Silva's like, Bond, like, come join me. She's hurt us both. Emma's hurt both of us. Like, come join me. Come, come, my brother, come, come here. And, like, it's never about Silva versus Bond. It's that Skyfall is always silva versus m and bond is just in the middle of things and silva's like i have to go through you to get to m and fine i'll do it right and safine it is it is about it is always about madeline it is always about getting revenge on specter and it doesn't happen until the very last second where he's like it's about getting revenge on Madeline and Spectre and you, James. You 
are the tool, you are the path to which I inflict my revenge. In a way that Skyfall is never like that. Bond in Skyfall is just there to protect M as long as he can before she finally, you know, succumbs, before she does finally pass. Whereas this, he finally is turned into the weapon of Safin's revenge, and he has to make the decision. Because if Bond lives, Madeline loves him too much. You know there will finally, Safin knows, there will finally be a moment in time where her will breaks and she goes to him, no matter where he is. Even if he stayed on that island by himself, uh, you know, uh, uh, Oliver Queen style from Arrow, she will eventually come find him. And Bond knows that and has to make the final sacrifice of, I do this to protect my family, to protect the ones I love. And I think that little nuance, that little difference between Silva and Safine is what gives me the edge to Safine as a villain. And then ultimately, no time to die over Skyfall. Don't get me wrong, I love Skyfall, but no time to die. When I left the theater, I was thinking about, okay... I want to come back and watch this movie while it's still in theaters again. And that is a feeling I have not had from a movie since, like, Logan or Baby Driver five years ago. Like, that, that was the last time I kind of had that urge of, like, I loved this movie so much, I want to rewatch it again, like, right now. There, and I haven't had that big, in so long. There's some big Logan energy there. I like that comparison, actually, because it's another story in which we have a hero who sacrifices themselves for a better future for the people that are going to carry on that legacy and that will kind of supersede them right uh and bond's decision to let himself die because it's better to destroy this poison factory i i mean it leaves the the last shot you see of bond is just brilliant it is the most bond way anyone could die um just explosions everywhere it I, I we didn't talk a lot about the action set pieces but they're all really well executed um they're all the cinematography of this film is great the sound design on this film is great um the variety in terms of set pieces that they use is really great there's a little bit of everything here um that you could want and it does a very good job of sort of masking that Bond and Craig are a little bit older and doesn't force them to do these very long, drawn-out, hand-to-hand combat sequences. I mean, the longest sequence we get is when he's climbing the tower, and it's all, it's all firearms. It's all marksmanship. It's all, all gunfight. And there's very few moments where they're like, all right, you know, Craig, we need you to get out there. We need you to have some fisticuffs with the bad guy. And... It, like you said, there's a little bit of everything, so every bit of it feels special and fun, and and like that is the right moment for that action piece and that part of the movie. I will also say, um, real quick, because I think it's it's hard for a film to do this. Uh, there's some real funny moments in this. Like it still manages to remember that it is a Bond film, and gives Bond a couple really fun one-liners. Uh, you know, uh, I showed him your new watch. It blew his mind. Uh, it was so good. <laughs> and it, it's hard to do that without breaking the tension 
of the scene as a whole. And this film wasn't afraid to embrace that side of Bond too, right? It is not, for, for all of the, you know, darker themes that we've talked about and the fact that it does end in Bond not making it out, this is not a nihilistic film. This is not a film in which the takeaway is that it was never enough and nothing that he could do was, you know, could, could truly save the day. This is a film that um, appreciates everything that this character is and made sure that in the final moments of the Bond franchise, we got it all. All of the things that you've loved, all of the things that you didn't like but worked towards some new whole it all comes together. It's all really smart. I, I just, I, I love this film. Uh, I don't know that it's better than Skyfall. I need to get a second watch of it to know for sure. Um, Skyfall is just so damn tight. Uh, and I don't have quibbles about details in Skyfall the way I do about things like the Nomi characterization. Um, it does leave us to, to ask the obvious question, which is the what comes next for Bond. Because this will not be the last Bond film, of course. And having James Bond die means that you can do a 007 while maintaining continuity with this universe, which I don't even know if that's something you want to do, but you could. Um, what well, would you like to see? What, when, when the next Bond film is inevitably made, because they're not going to stop making Bond films, it did too good at the box office for that. What do you want to see next? Well, so I know there's been a number of, like, discussions, and I really, I don't want to get into the, like, let's predict who the next Bond would be. I know out of all the names I've seen, Idris Elba is the most interesting to me, um, and especially after his performance in Hobbs and Shaw, like, I want to see him in a, like, action spy kind of movie role, but we'll push beyond that. Um, I know there was some drama with Amazon acquiring the bond uh, portfolio and that there's potential fears they're going to try and do a, a universe a la the mcu a la what dc is doing and that the family really doesn't want that um i don't think bond fits a 12 episode amazon prime series i don't know if there's anything in the universe that fits into that like if they did some kind of like agents of shield you know let's talk about the rest of mi6 let's get some more of q and m and some of the other agents like none of that is interesting to me james bond as a franchise and as a character is they name a new bond and then i know i'm gonna get four or five movies ish with that that person playing that character and there's sort of long form over the course of the to the number of movies, there's sort of long form themes, but I'm gonna get really good spy stories in each movie that sort of connect to each other as the character ages and as the world itself ages. Get new takes on a very very old genre with very straightforward simple plot beats. This happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. The hero overcome, overcomes, ending. And I really like that from Bond. I don't think the formula needs to be changed, but I am interested, like I saw kind of a clickbaity, 
article the other day that said Edgar Wright has a has an idea and has like partially written a script for what he thinks would be a good post Daniel Craig next movie. If anything happens with that, like cool, it's Edgar Wright. I love Edgar Wright as director. It'd be cool to get his take, but my desire is give this movie a couple years to resonate. I know there's going to be one day in early spring when this movie comes on to Amazon or a streaming platform or whatever that I'm going to treat myself with a double feature of Skyfall into No Time to Die so I can kind of have that discussion with myself of which movie is better, is Silva or Safina better villain, so on and so forth. But please, don't change the formula. Give it a couple years, let us you know discuss who we think the next Bond should be, make that decision, and then give me three, four, five movies with that actor playing the lead and tell me good stories. I don't need anything else from that. I don't need anything other than that from my Bond franchise. I'm, I'm set with that. Give me four or five really good stories with one person at the helm uh, as, the, as the title character and just ride with it. You don't need to give me, well, what does Q do in his off time? You give me a little sampling of that in every movie. I think that scene was really cute where they go to his house and he's setting up dinner for a date. And they're like, ah, sorry, you got to do work stuff. And he's just like, ah, okay. But I don't need 13 episodes of that. I'm good with just like a, a little two, three minute scene in a movie. So I don't know, Chase, what, what would you like to see from, from future Bond? You know, I, I think I, I'm happy to keep things in the universe that they've built just because I think the universe has characters we care about beyond bond but a lot of them have died um so i i wouldn't mind a fresh set I, I think the number one thing is i'd like this to not happen for a bit i'd like to let this sit i'd like for yeah. this death to feel like it matters um which is one of the reasons i you know i, I know we're not getting into bond picks but it's one of the reasons why i lean a little bit away from idris elba because he'll be older by the time that i would like for uh the new bond to really take hold um i i think I think we are at a moment now in which the way that spy films are built uh, needs to change because we live in a very different world than the world in which a lot of these spy films were originally written, in which the technology has hit a point in which, you know, very different kinds of threats can exist. And I would love to see them continue to push closer in, in the direction of kind of the modern version of the cold war right you know this way the number of countries that exert their influence on other sovereign nations without ever declaring war right we, we see a lot of this and i think james bond being a natural extension of that and coming to terms with the realities of of what that means and and questioning that would be a very fun critique of both you know kind of CIA foreign policy in general uh, and the military industrial complex that helps enable these kinds of groups in the first place. Right. I, I, I think there are, I, I think this last group of bond films has been at their best when they've kept their sights focused on these inevitabilities of collateral damage based on the culture that has been created that allowed for this to happen, right? 
Um, none of these villains, especially in the last couple, are, are anything that could not be seen in the modern day or has not been argued by people as a potential positive if we, the good guys, had access to it, you know? Um, and so I think there's a lot. I, I, I think there's a lot they can go with on that. But I, I definitely would like to see that kind of uh, larger commentary continue rather than falling back into, um, you know, the more traditional tropes that we see from uh, other spy films. Because James Bond can be more than that. We know that now. I, I would entirely agree. It sounds like you want, like, more of a Tom Clancy style, but with something to say that's anti, you know, military industrial uh, complex. A Tom Clancy film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A Tom Clancy film written by someone who isn't an asshole. That would be great. That would be awesome. <laughs> I, I would love uh, anyone not Tom Clancy to write the kinds of stories that Tom Clancy tends to write would be awesome. Gotcha. So Dan Brown writing a Tom Clancy novel. Oh, how perfect. dare I you? I think we could get there. <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> well, with that being said, I mean, I I know, like, I could find... If I rewatch this movie tonight after we recorded this, I could come back tomorrow and probably do another, like, hour talking about this movie and, and diving further into it. Um, but Chase, at the end of the day... I know we've done this like score thing, so let's just keep keep going with it. We, we're three episodes in now. Let's keep going with the score. Give, give me a score. This is a four and a half out of five stars. Um, it's not quite perfect, but it's pretty darn close. And it does a lot to really bring out the best in the characters that they've built. Um, I really loved it, and I highly recommend people go see it. Uh, I would agree. I would say it's a seven martini shaken, not stirred out of eight. I would, I would entirely agree with you on that. Um, the I rare seven out of eight scale. Interesting. <laughs> the rare seven. Well, listen. If you divide it, uh, it's uh, three and a half out of four. So you know, mm. similar to to your number. I, I royally bungled that. That was what I was trying to do, and I bungled the numbers. So that's why I do <laughs> podcasts, and I'm not a scientist. In a secret MI6 lab, creating a DNA-focused bioweapon. That's why I do this instead. <laughs> <laughs> That's very fair. That's very fair. I, and like I said earlier, this is the first movie that I've seen in like five years that I've come out of the theater and gone like, I would, I would pay money to go back into the theater and watch this again, like right now. So... Way to go, Daniel Craig. I can't think of a higher note uh, to go out on than this. And look forward to what you do uh, with the Knives Out franchise because, hey, buddy, that's, that's what you got going for you now. So good luck, and I hope you don't feel the same way that you did about the Bond character as you do about that character because you've got two more movies on deck for that. So <laughs> Chase... Where can the good folks at home find you on the interwebs? Uh, you can find me at Chase Wassenaar on Twitter. Uh, and you can find the podcast at Rough Drafts Pod on Twitter. Um, Going to be trying, hopefully, you've seen over the last couple weeks, uh, some clips shared from our Black Widow episode. Going to be trying to do more of that. Would also love uh, questions. If you guys ever want to uh, hear uh, us talk about a thing, uh, if there's something you'd like us to touch on, 
uh, by all means, uh, hit uh, either me or that account out, and we will uh, be sure to pick up on it. Yeah, absolutely. And I know, uh, I know we both have uh, the notifications set up for that account on both of our phones. So uh, if you do have any questions or comments or anything, you'll have an answer from both of us, probably, unless the other person says it so succinctly that we can't say anything other than I concur. Uh, you guys can find me at C80s underscore LOL, continuing to scream into the void as uh, I work on my 30th year around the sun. Uh, so until next time, which, you know what, Chase, I'm just going to say it outright. We're going to space. We are going to space. Much like William Shatner, we're going to space. Until next time, goodbye, Internet. Space.